Ideas on Community. I'm David Cayley. Contemporary Western societies have been characterized until recently by a relentless growth in social services. Demands for such services now far exceed the capacities of public budgets, resulting in what is widely recognized as the crisis of the welfare state. But the typical response has been a policy debate that focuses on setting ceilings or streamlining services. The fact that social services monopolize the definition of welfare is still not questioned. This ideas series is about someone who has questioned that definition of welfare. Someone who claims that beyond a certain intensity, the professionalization of care, counsel, and consolation turns citizens into clients. Someone who insists that paid services degrade and often destroy abilities which already exist within the community. His name is John McKnight, and he has worked with communities and neighborhoods throughout Canada and the United States, as well as directing the program in community studies at Northwestern University in suburban Chicago. He believes that a service economy based on needs hides a very different landscape in which gifts and capacities are what count. And he believes that a good society in which everyone's gift can be given only begins to be born when this obscuring veil is lifted. In these programs, which I have called Community and Its Counterfeits, John McKnight shares some of the stories of a lifetime's community organizing. He defines the distinctive non-institutional sphere, which he calls citizen space. He explores the disabling effects on this space of professional help. And he describes the regeneration of hospitable communities based on the giving of gifts. A culture, at least in the more traditional sense, is a set of learnings about how we as a people can persevere or survive in this place. Modern institutions are not about that question. They are new machines redefining us not as a people in a place, but as individuals in a system. I think one of the things that's happened in modern society is that we think more and more that institutions make people, that you will be trained, that out of the training and management of your life, you will become who you are. I see very little discourse or consideration about the question, what is the gift of each person here? Is a gift something that is of your nature rather than something that you develop out of your experience? I often buy presents for Christmas time through catalogs because I don't like to shop. And so I'll put these things as I buy them through the year on a shelf. And uh, I had a visitor who looked in the closet where I had all these things stacked up on the shelf. 
And the visitor said, uh, what's all this junk? <laughs> I said, that's not junk, those are gifts. And uh, the visitor, a very wise person, said to me, oh no, it's just junk. A gift isn't a gift till it's given. My grandmother, I think, had a lot of influence on me because one day, uh, she was an Irish-American, one day, probably when I was five or six years old, in her kitchen, she uh, looked at me and said, you know, you have a gift. And uh, I said, what? I think maybe I thought she was going to give me a gift. <laughs> and she said, Blarney. And uh, I think she was trying to tell me about a talent I had been given. Community and its Counterfeits is in three parts. I recorded the interviews with John McKnight over a period of several days at his home in Evanston, Illinois, in June of 1993. The first program explores the meaning of community the effect on community of social services, and the way in which John McKnight's background made him aware of this effect. I was uh, raised in a family of people who, were, who called themselves covenanters. And there aren't many of them in the world. I think there are maybe three or 4,000 in the United States. And in Northern Ireland and Scotland, there may be five or 6,000 more. And they are the remnants of uh, the formation of the Presbyterian Church in uh, Scotland back in the 1680s. But they were the extremists. They were the people who uh, were unwilling to compromise with the British crown. They made a covenant to resist the crown and to uh, say the head of their church was uh, Jesus Christ and not the king. And there are a bunch of compromises made by the other resistors or dissenters, but the covenanters didn't compromise. And uh, so they uh, stood in rebellion and fought the the English in some hopeless skirmishes. <laughs> and in Scotland, you can see the little monuments to the places where the English descended on them in their prayer meetings and killed them all. And finally, they fled to Northern Ireland. And then some of them came to the United States. And those were the people who, uh, who were my ancestors on my father's side had a great influence, I think, on me. And they were a saving remnant, right, the people of Zion. So we were raised with the view that there were three or 4,000 people in the United States who um, knew the truth. Then there were the others. And by the time I left my family, I think I was pretty well convinced that the uh, institutions of society were not something that were to be honored, were to be respected, were going to guide anybody in the right direction. That it was from our community and our families and our, our faith that our 
guidance would come. The first thing that struck me when I went to the university, and I went to Northwestern University where I am, the first day, <laughs> the thing that struck me was learning from a person who I just happened to be given as a roommate that the university had a discriminatory policy that had, would let in only black people who were athletes. And it had a quota on the number of Jewish people that would admit. And the motto of this university is, whatsoever things are true, think on these things. So I come to this institution that has this, this motto on its lintel and find that it is just systematically denying the gifts of people who are black or who are Jewish. That confirmed uh, right off what I had been told was the truth, right? And uh, so I think that's probably the, the beginning of a, of a story. John McKnight's story, as it unfolded, was about community organizing, first at Northwestern as a student, and then, after three years in the Navy, with the Chicago Commission on Human Relations, the city's first civil rights organization. Later, he would work for the American Civil Liberties Union, the Kennedy administration's pioneering Equal Employment Opportunity Office, and the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights as its Midwestern director. Then, at the end of the 60s, he found himself unexpectedly transplanted to academia. The university, Northwestern University, received uh, a major grant from the Ford Foundation to start an urban center in 1969 as the, cent as the center cities were burning across the United States. The Ford Foundation gave money to universities to try to give them an incentive to apply their knowledge, expertise to the solution of city problems. They gave money to a lot of universities, and Northwestern was one of them. And an old friend of mine was the person who was to create this new center with this Ford Foundation money and allowed him to bring a lot of faculty members in, but he thought there should be at least one person with real-world experience in terms of the realities of cities and their, and their lives. And, and he had been a professor of mine when I was an undergraduate. And I kept in touch with him all these years. So in a very unusual move, they came to me with my bachelor's degree and said, would you come to the center and we'll make you a professor, a full professor. And uh, so I was made a tenured professor at the university by a stroke of a pen. <laughs> <laughs> and I've been there ever since. <laughs> but it was very clear that my purpose in being there was to be the connection between the, the demands and realities of the city and its life and the university and its resources. And so that, that was, has been a very happy fit for me because I don't think my background would allow me to be a full-time traditional academic. And then as time passed, I began to develop a little clarity on my own part as, a, as to a particular kind of focus that I might ha have other than being sort of the connector. And that focus evolved into what we would call the program in community studies now, 
but it is an effort to understand how local communities solve problems. And I think that's pretty much what we've come to be known for. How would you define the word community? You know, if you go to a sociology department and you ask that question of the faculty, you'll never leave. But my experience is, put in academic terms, applied. So that when you ask me the question, uh, what is the community, I probably listen to it, where is it? And there, the answer is, in your mind, and in the mind of every other person in Canada, it's a different place. To some people, it's a feeling. To some people, it's a relationships. To some people, it's a place. To some people, it's an institution. And so while that word is used a lot, it, it is certainly not very functional if what you're trying to do <laughs> is to think about anything that is applied and manifest. So I've had to come to creating a definition of community that is useful for our purposes. And that community is the space where citizens prevail. John McKnight found what he considered to be the most pertinent description of this space in the writings of Alexis de Tocqueville. De Tocqueville was a young French aristocrat who visited the United States in 1831 and 1832, journeying as far west as Green Bay, Wisconsin, and as far south as New Orleans. He noted on his travels how the young republic differed from the old world, and then, on his return to France, set down his impressions. That book, Democracy in America, is, I think, the most useful book I know to help understand who we are. And he says, if I can summarize him in a rather gross form, that he came here and he found a society where its definitions and solutions were not created by nobility, by professionals, by experts or managers, but by what he identified as little groups of people, self-appointed, <laughs> common men and women, who came together and took three powers, the power to decide there was a problem, <laughs> the power to decide how to solve the problem, that is the expert's power, and then the power to solve the problem. And these little groups of people weren't elected, and they weren't appointed, and they were every place, and they were, he said, the heart of the new society. They were the American community as distinct from the European community. And he named these little groups associations. Association is the collective for citizens, an association of citizens. And so... We think of our community as being the social space in which citizens in association do the work of problem-solving, celebration, consolation, and creation. 
that community, that space, in contrast to the space of the system with the box at the top and lots of boxes at the bottom. And I think it is still the case that the hope for our time is in those associations. Associations, in de Tocqueville's view, express the spontaneous and voluntary character of the new society, the way in which Americans without common traditions could still make common cause. And this is what John McKnight wants to underline in de Tocqueville's account, the idea of a social space in continuous creation by its citizens, who claim, by the very fact of their citizenship, authority and responsibility in this space. And where such a space exists, McKnight says, associations will naturally tend to proliferate, according to the gifts of the citizens. The best community, it will be imperfect, it can't be fixed beyond this, is one where among each of us and through our varying relationships, what's happening is all kinds of methods to create all kinds of situations in, when, in which each of us finds relationships where our gifts are recognized and magnified. Now, in my hometown, the newspaper printed a list of associations that the editor knew about. This is a town that has 1,300 people, and the list is 81. And I know there are a lot more than that. Now, why are there so many of these little associations in such a little town? Well. I think the reason for that is that they keep proliferating until all the ways that we appreciate each other, almost the mathematical possibilities for clusters of appreciations get uniquely magnified and celebrated in these kind of groups. And I think that leads to rich in diverse communities that recognize the specialness of people and provide all kinds of ways for their own spirit to express itself and to find other people who get expression of the spirit in the same way. John McKnight defines community as the space in which citizens associate in their own individual and collective interests. He believes this space to be mainly threatened by institutionally defined social programs with the power to establish authoritative definitions of need. Needs are, in effect, the resources of the service sector of contemporary economies. What iron ore is to the steel industry, needs are to those who propose to meet them. A hundred years ago, 90% of those who worked produced tangible goods, and only 10% what economists call services. Today, the situation is nearly reversed. A declining minority are employed in industry and agriculture, while a majority produce service of some kind. The perverse consequence, according to John McKnight, is that for this new economy to grow, problems must proliferate. We have now in a funny way, an architecture of industrial systems applied to services being manufactured and delivered 
as a way of meeting the need to pay people for doing work that isn't goods producing. And so we're involved in actually a humorous but tragic <laughs> kind of never-ending search for new needs in people because systems that grow have to find new needs and impute them to people. And the problem with that is it is always at the cost of diminished citizenship. So that as these systems of service colonize your life and my life, saying that we are bundles of needs and there are institutionalized services there to meet the needs, to make us whole, to make us real, what we become is less and less powerful. Our citizen capacity and our gifts get lost and forgotten. So that there is, I believe, a relentless struggle between associational ways and system ways. And what we have seen in our time is the ascendance of systems over associations. Making the damage which follows from this ascendance visible has been one of John McKnight's central preoccupations. In the summer of 1989, in the American journal Social Policy, he published an article called Do No Harm, in which he tried to establish the seemingly simple but utterly disregarded principle that social interventions have side effects. For this purpose, he borrowed from medicine the idea of iatrogenesis, literally, physician-caused harm. The idea of iatrogenesis is long established in medicine. In fact, there's a famous piece of lore in medicine that it was sometime in uh, around 1910 or 1911 that medical skills developed to the place where it was more likely that a doctor would help you than hurt you if you showed up at a doctor's office. That, that prior to that time, the odds were that you're going to be worse off rather than better off. And this is sort of even institutionalized in the famous drug manual, the physician's desk reference every doctor has, which lists all of the drugs and then shows with each all of its negative effects. There's always a cost associated with the benefit. In fact, the, the famous Eli Lilly, who founded the, a major drug company in the United States, started out creating patent medicine. And on his labels of all his medicines back in the early days, in the 1800s, it said, a drug with no side effects is no drug at all. This idea, which is so deeply embedded in the premier service, medicine, is almost non-existent in all of the other helping services. The idea that a social worker's help might hurt more than help, or that a psychologist, or that a psychiatrist, the person whose interventions have a necessary negative side effect, like Eli Lilly's drugs, like every drug we have today. There is no drug in the PDR that doesn't have negative side effects. But if you go to the other helping professions, and you ask, now, uh, tell me if you intervene in the following way, 
what are the probable negative side effects of that, you will find a blank look. If you go to universities that prepare people for these professions and say, what studies on the negative side effects of the interventions of these helping services professionals, what do they show as to the negative effects? You will find a blank look, a, a non-researched area. So that we began to raise the question, what are the negative effects of what you're doing? John McKnight and his colleagues eventually concluded that there were four such effects that could be described as universal and inevitable. He recognized, of course, that there were infinitely more particular or local effects that might sometimes occur. But these four, he argued, would always occur. The first is that into the person's being or life comes an intervention that focuses upon their deficiencies rather than their capacities. And there are all kinds of effects that flow from that that are negative. We know that if one surrounds any individual with messages and experiences that are always saying to them, what's important about you is what's wrong with you, that that will have a powerful, powerful, depressing, disillusioning, and degrading effect upon that person. We say to a kid who gets up every morning, you know what, you're no damn good. Well, what will happen to the kid? So the first cost is the necessary degradation of the individual's self-concept by the messages of deficiency, wrongness, brokenness, and need that the helper brings. The second negative side effect has to do with what happens to the community's economy and the individual's economy. Every time we decide on a service intervention, we're making an economic decision. Every time, in fact, you decide to buy a service professional, you are de facto deciding not to buy something else, including income for people whose primary problem is lack of income. So the second great iatrogenic effect is that we have decided so often for the service intervention that we have now taken the majority of all public investments in the poor and given it to non-poor people who are called servicers. The third effect has to do with the fact that each time we say in a local community, and especially through a low-income community, we need more services, we need more agencies, we need more systems, we need more outreach. We are making a decision that the neighborhood's indigenous associations, leadership, and capacities are inadequate to solve the problem. And in that trade-off, we are always diminishing the community's powers by investing in the system's powers. The fourth negative effect has to do with the fact that it is possible that a particular intervention has more benefit than cost. However, 
because one intervention works does not mean that six other interventions, each that independently might seem to work, will mean that you have a seven times more powerful intervention that in fact the aggregation of these interventions may negate the positive benefits. Now, we can understand that in a metaphorical sense. I live in a neighborhood where there are some trees. And if you said to me or any of my neighbors, do you live in a forest? We would say, no, we don't live in a forest. But you have trees, yes, but we don't live in a forest. A forest is a place where there are enough trees that they redefine the environment. We all know when we walk into a forest because what is growing in a forest is different than is growing in my neighborhood. The density of the trees create a different ecology. There are different animals. So that the very same elm trees, if there are enough of them, will create a new world, a new environment, a new ecology. So it is with services. You can have one service alone, but when you get enough services intervening in a person's life, you will create a forest of services. So aggregating services around people creates new environments that will guarantee deviant behavior by the people who receive the services, even though any one of them will look justified in and of itself. These are the four harms which John McKnight considers to be structural, inbuilt effects of human service interventions. People will become known by their deficiencies, not their gifts. Money will tend to be put at the discretion of those offering service rather than those defined as in need. Active citizenship will retreat in the face of professional expertise. And services will aggregate to form total environments. These effects, McKnight believes, are so widely overlooked because of the compelling rationale for human services. The good human services claim to provide is care, and care is normally an expression of love. The result is that the underlying political and economic structure of services is hidden by what John McKnight once called the mask of love, a mask which deceives the benefactors and the beneficiaries alike. Good intention, I think, is the most dangerous explanation for an action that there is. We ought never, ever to think because somebody has good intentions, says they care, are doing something for a good motive, is any indication at all that in fact what they do will be good for others, for themselves, or for society. Almost every crime, I think, <laughs> in society that is a societal crime was done by people who had good intentions. And the great, great tragedy of the service industry is the blindness, the mask it wears, the blinding mask it wears because of its belief and its good intentions.
One of the inevitable side effects which John McKnight assigns to social services is the replacement of community capacities. Knowledge vested in professionals disappears from communities. Confidence withers in the face of professional mystique. Eventually, communities lose the vital functions which sustain them as communities. And this loss, John McKnight believes, extends right down to the level of the family. Families are the primary association in a society. And just as other associations are under assault by our systems, so families are just one more manifestation, I believe, of the same thing. And you can see it, and I can see it, and all of us can see it in our own lives. If you have a family, a group of people, intimate, closely bound to each other, and you say of them, what do they do? They are of the same blood. But why do they stay together, this little group? Well, it is a good question. Why would they stay together if their health is in a doctor, their knowledge is in a teacher, their mental stability is in a psychiatrist, their conflict resolution is in a lawyer, their family conflict is in a social worker, their meals are in a McDonald's. What is this thing called a family? What does it do? It really doesn't do anything. A family that is a collection of clients has no purpose other than procreation. Human social organizations persevere because they perform functions. There is always a motive, a reason, a cement, something that keeps those people together. And we have always said kinship keeps people together as a cement. But I think we've radically overestimated the cement if it is nothing more than blood. Because what we know is that that blood was a primary way of saying those for whom I will take mutual responsibility and those who with them we are able to make a way and make a life. And now those people don't have these mutual functions. N nothing's left but affect. Nothing's left but the hopeful power of love or romance or care. And I think relationships grow out of function that ultimately Love grows strong on the basis of people who have worked together, who have suffered together. I think of, of my grandparents on my mother's side, my Irish-American grandparents. And I never, I, I can hardly think of anybody that I, I knew who I thought loved each other more, and I never saw them touch each other but I never saw them apart from each other. And I never saw them doing anything but making a life, a way, a home, a enterprise together. They had so understood each other's gifts. <laughs> they had so worked them together 
and magnified them and grown powerful together. And each day in that way their affection grew and uh, when I knew them as old people. The love was impenetrable. The divorce could never have cut its way through that bond. John McKnight explored the issue of how families and communities lose their vital functions when he gave the fourth annual E.F. Schumacher Lecture in 1984. He called his lecture John Deere and the Bereavement Counselor, and in it he considered the suggestive analogy between the two figures of his title. John Deere was a blacksmith from Grand Detour, Illinois, who in 1837 invented a new tool, a steel plow capable for the first time of busting tough prairie sod. With this new tool, the Great Plains were tamed for agriculture, but the settlers, as they moved westward, often left behind them deserts of depleted soil, which later arrivals had to learn to husband and regenerate. Bereavement counseling, McKnight claimed, is a tool with comparable effects on the human ecology. It cuts into the weave of community life as surely as deer's plow sheared the tangled grasses of the prairie and leaves behind a social desert. How did communities deal with tragedy before bereavement counselors and psychological therapists descended on us when a tragedy came? They came together and sat with each other, and they cried together. They held hands. They wept on each other's shoulder. They remembered stories of other suffering and told those stories to each other. They sang songs that had been a part of the memory of their people forever about tragedy and about the meaning of life in the face of tragedy. And they said the 700 prayers that they knew that called for God to help them through this time, this people, this people together. And they lit some incense. And they sat in silence. And then they got up and they had a man with a mask of the devil. And they danced with the devil and scorned him and laughed at him. And then they came together and they had a great meal. And they laughed and they drank and they cried. And all of that was what we did. But now we are enriched because instead of that, we have a person with a master's degree in bereavement counseling from the University of Minnesota who can come to our home and sit with us and put inputs into us that will help us process our grief like a sausage-making machine processes sausage. We are impoverished by that service. If it ever replaces our prayers, our songs, our tears, our hands. But does it ever precisely replace it, or is there always a gap? I mean, a bereavement counselor, had he or she appeared a generation earlier, <laughs> would have met incredulity. You're a what? Yes. 
we know how to grieve. The need must first appear plausible. The bereavement counselor will say, yes, it's very well for you, McKnight, to vaporize about community and all the wonderful things that used to happen, but in fact, lonely, isolated people need my service. Ah, and I can assure you you're correct. I actually had the honor of meeting the first master's degree certified bereavement counselor in the United States of America. And this was about 14 years ago. I met her at the University of Minnesota. And exactly, I was wondering, they think they're meeting a need. Where in Canada or the United States would I find anybody who, when asking the question, do you need a bereavement counselor, would say yes. They would not have heard of one. They wouldn't know what they did. And it might be hard to imagine. So the bereavement counselor I met had to figure out some place to begin the work of introducing this new service in a society that didn't really see a need. And exactly the people you're talking about are the people that the bereavement counselor picked. Oh, we understand you've got a family, it still functions, these relationships are there. But there are lonely widows in nursing homes who've just lost their husbands and they have nobody. They need my service. And I think the way the progression goes is they find those people who are the most defenseless and ununderstanding and underprivileged and introduce their services there. And then they approach the institutions of the society, the United Way, the government or foundations, and say, you should pay me to provide my bereavement services to this poor lonely widow. And if they're successful in that, they get this institutionalized as a service. Then they will build out from there, and they will say, we have done studies that show how kinship grieving is all right, but there are seven stages of grief. And our studies show that the grief process in the strongest of kinship groups involved in the, the traditions of solace, only reached the first three stages of grief. But there are four later stages of grief that our research has discovered. And we meet those four stages of grief. And you may not be underprivileged, and you may have a full family, and you may have a, 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 a community, that provides you solace and support. But our research shows that there are four additional stages of grief that will not be affected by this, and you've got that need. There's something wrong with you, David. You have four stages of unprocessed grief. And let me tell you, we have just got the government to agree in its social insurance to fund grief counseling. So not only can the community not deal with all of your grief and we can but you're paying for it and if you don't use it you're just wasting your money 
So call us in, David, because you need us. And when you call me in, when you call a bereavement counselor in, and your Aunt Mary calls to say, David, I'd like to come over this afternoon because she's a part of the solace of your community. You say, Aunt Mary, I'd love to have you come over, but the bereavement counselor is here. Could you come over this evening? And Aunt Mary comes to know the real truth, which is the real solace is the solace you'll pay for. And hers is just sort of a tawdry, shabby, second-rate thing. And that's right, because she's been replaced by a bereavement counselor. And that's the way it works. John McKnight sees community and social service as bound in the relationship mathematicians call inverse proportion. Their sum is constant, so as one waxes, the other must wane. And he believes that where consolation or other social supports are absent, the question must always be, where is the community, not where is the bereavement counselor? Justifying bereavement counseling on the basis that there is no consoling community even though it may in some cases be true, will also ensure that no community regenerates. Consolation will warp towards a standard cultivated in graduate schools, and a professional grouping will appear with a vested interest in damping down or denying community capacities. But though Aunt Mary and the bereavement counselor may be alternatives, it is clear that the consolation each offers is of a very different kind. Community responses to life's vicissitudes differ from institutional responses. They cannot be managed in the same way, nor can they be certified or guaranteed. Community responses rest on character and ingrained virtue, things which can vary, waver, and fail. This may be one of the reasons, John McKnight supposes, that communities have yielded before the utopian promise of a system that cares and cares unfailingly to the highest professional standard. Regeneration of community, therefore, depends on our abandoning the fantasy that our highest hopes can be transformed into effective techniques. John McKnight calls it the belief that people can be fixed. There are all kinds of people called developmentally disabled, or some people label these folks as mentally retarded people who are in institutions and group, group homes, who were born with a set of gifts and capacities and a set of limits. If you go and look at what's being done with a lot of these people, you will find 40-year-old people who are, with whom professionals are working, and they're teaching them how to tie their shoes. And if you say, um, 
How's he coming along? Well, he, he can't tie his shoes. Uh, how long do you think people have been trying to teach him how to tie his shoes? Well, I've only been here four years, and we, you know, we do this getting ready for community life practice here twice a week, so I don't know, five years, but probably the people before me, maybe 20 years. Oh, 20 years teaching this man how to tie his shoes. But if he ever learns how to tie his shoes, then, am I correct? I say to the professional, then he'll be ready for community life and he can come out with us in the community. Yeah, that and a few other things. Now that man will live in the womb of professionals until he dies. He'll never be born to community. Because they are going to fix somebody who is unfixable. And in the course of that, deny his gifts to community. That's a terrible trade-off. But most people in the community probably believe that he needs to be fixed. Now, they believe he needs to be fixed because somebody came into the community and said they could fix him. Because there was a time when nobody thought he needed to be fixed because nobody proposed to fix him. So that in that sense, the possibility of saying, yes, you never will be able to tie your shoe or read, is the door to community and the recognition of the gifts. All of community life is like that. There is nothing that is fixable in perfection. I think it comes with the human nature that we are not finally going to be fixed. And so I think I start with that premise, that to the degree that all of the society is committed to and invested in fixing people, it creates huge and increasingly burdensome and increasingly tyrannical institutions intervening in the lives of people when what we needed was a community that saw their gifts and said those gifts need to be given. We have wonderful possibilities in society if we're willing to fail to be gods, if we give up the idea that we can create institutions and systems that will fix everything, that will be the modern gods, that will make us whole, make us real, make us all those things. That's when life will come alive, when communities will grow, when we see the wonderful possibilities of failing to be God. You've been listening to part one of Community and Its Counterfeits, a three-part series on the ideas of John McKnight. John McKnight directs the program in community studies at Northwestern University's Institute for Urban Affairs, 
The series continues next week at this time with a program about McKnight's years as a community organizer in Chicago and his views on the regeneration of communities today. Technical direction of tonight's program was by Lauren Tulk, production assistants Gail Brownell and Liz Nodge. You can get a printed transcript of tonight's program for $7 plus GST or the entire series for $18 plus GST. To order your copy, call this toll-free number, 1-800-363-1530. Again, that's 1-800-363-1530. Or you can send a check or money order to Ideas Transcripts, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm David Cayley. Stay tuned for Between the Covers, Episode 7 of Paddy Clark, Ha Ha Ha, by Roddy Doyle. The story, seen through the eyes of a ten-year-old, is both funny and fierce. Youthful shenanigans share space with a painful family breakup. Between the Covers, following the 10 o'clock news. <laughs>